I guess welcome back to our second podcast. This is Chris and Neil. Hello. <laughs> I should let you say this is Chris, right? <laughs> yeah, this is Chris, and that's Neil. Yeah. <laughs> and this is Neil. <laughs> uh, we want to move into phase two of understanding a little bit more of Chris's uh, mind and investment philosophy and how he got a start of where he's going. And um, I think we left off talking a little bit more about how the 87 crash affected you and how you wanted to be more certain and you started to move more into understanding value investment and Ben Graham's philosophies. Um, There are a few phases here. I, I was trying to break up your life into more distinct phases so he could try and talk about it mm-hmm. easier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> talk to me about uh, this second phase as you're exploring that, uh, moving from feeling like a genius with uh, weighing labs to uh, losing it all and uh, you know realizing you wanted to do something else. Walk us through that. Well, Walk that us through the next really, phase. Yeah, Neil, I think of that kind of as the first phase. You know, I... Um, um, I invested more, um, as Warren Buffett has joked, with my glands than with my head. I was excited about technology. I was very excited about the story um, for some of these companies like Wang Labs. And I made the full round trip <clears throat> um, with my investment <laughs> where I looked like a genius and then not so much at the end. Um, but really, I think the... Um, and that led me to Ben Graham and figuring out a way where the probabilities for investing would be uh, much more in my favor. Um, but even in that phase, as I start started to look at companies, I felt that I was um, concrete bound. You know. Um, no, I don't know what that means. Explain that. Um, ben Graham, uh, as his teachings espoused um, really looked at the um, current snapshot of valuation of the company and what uh, he felt were methods to determine the intrinsic value. And then at the very last step, referencing Mr. Market, the stock market, to determine whether you were getting value for your investment dollar or not. Um, you know, the old saying in investing is you want the markets to agree with you eventually. Sooner is better, but <laughs> but you want the markets to agree with you eventually. And <clears throat> I think the that started a wonderful phase in uh, my investing career of getting a deeper understanding and being able to um, appraise companies um, in different industries um, and studying different business models. The 1987 crash, though, kind of was a shock. You know, it was a big one. Um, and it really was, in essence, a credit event, um, though it was quickly remedied by the Fed cutting interest rates and expanding credit again, um, which set us on a whole different course. But that was um, a big wake up. And I figured um, that there was even a, a third stage, sort of, that, um, you know, looking at companies at the micro level um, was critical to success performing the valuations, making sure you're getting, um, that you can make a buck, that you're getting uh, money, getting value for your money. But the 
the other phase was you could be micro as long as, as much as you want, but you have to also look at the macro um, environment. So, so build that up, build that up a little bit. Explain to me, you know, you, you, you've this great synthesizers of, of information and it sounds like 87 did that to you that you started to start to build up your understanding of a value from scratch of a company. Uh, mm -hmm. Help me understand that a little better. Well, I kind of, uh, I thought about it. I Hold on, uh, because there's lots of, a ton of filters you add to making any investment decision, right? It's not, I mean, you're reading a ton, you're making your own analysis, mm -hmm. and, and I'm sure this is where you started to build up that thought process and methodology to every kind of investment. So that's what I'm really trying to understand better. For, well, it's phase two. Yeah, phase two um, sent me back to the history books, you know, I... Uh, started to look really at the credit cycle and um, the Bible, the history of interest rates by Sidney Homer was a great starting place. But looking back to at previous cycles, like the 1921 um, uh, depression and of course the great depression and even the 1870s to see, is there a way to get a better handle um, on the ebbs and flows of the credit cycle? And in some way, marry that with the um, with an investment thesis that makes sense, um, and figuring out how that influences the the value of of uh, the intrinsic value of any investment we're making. I, I guess I mean the reliability of the cash flows, you know. Um, in finance, uh, the most common method of uh, evaluating a company is, of course, the DCF model, the discounted cash flow model. But really, who knows what a company's cash flow is going to be five years from now, two years from now? No one. So it's garbage in, garbage out. I mean, you go out beyond a, a year and a half. Even then, you're guessing. But the farther out you go with, the D, with that model... <laughs> the farther, uh, the more garbage you're putting into the, the model itself. And so, you know, the output's going to be garbage as well. Um, but that gets to another point too. Um, you know, the avuncular Warren Buffett has always said, um, that he doesn't invest in technology. He's being a little disingenuous, but what he means, I think is he wants businesses with very reliable cash flows so he doesn't have to make the investment process unduly complicated. Um, and I definitely um, appreciate that. Um, Chris, take, take me in a little more than that. You're sharing a little bit more about how you're looking at it. But I understand you went back to the history books. You started with mm -hmm. this, this book on you know, the history of credit cycles. But mm -hmm. build, build that out for me a little bit. Help me understand... To, to some degree, after I'm done with this conversation, I want Ian, who is listening in right now, and all of the other people who listen later, to, mm -hmm. to understand what it is they would need to do in order to start to synthesize some of what you're reading in history, why, and how it's affecting what you're doing today. Yeah, well, um, one of the... Wall Street bromides, of course, that uh, is endlessly handy, 
pushed out is that you can't time the market. And I think that that is um, generally good advice. <laughs> but there are times, of course, when you absolutely can. You can see that valuations are outrageous or at extreme levels. It doesn't mean you can pick the exact tops or bottoms, but it does mean that you can understand the asymmetries in risk and reward. And when you're taking on an undue amount of risk for a small reward, picking up the proverbial pennies in front of a steamroller, then you don't have to do that, you know. And studying the interest rate and credit cycle um, has helped me in a lot of ways um, to avoid uh, some of these, these big uh, exogenous shocks, these events, uh, like 2008 and 99, 2000 really March of 2000. Um, but it seems like you still went back and studied more. So when I'm hearing this versus what I know about you, you're making it seem as if you just studied uh, some of the history of the United States credit cycle. Mm. Obviously, you studied the European credit cycle. And you, you can quote me more about Chinese history than any you know, history teacher I've ever met. And it seems to me about history in general. This is why I'm asking for a broader flavor. Um, of, oh yeah, of oh, how no. deep you went and why and how that helps you predict today. Because if I said, hey, tell me a, a few times in history where the Greeks were in this situation, where the Chinese were in this situation, where the Indians were in this situation that we're in today, you'd quote it for me. You'd tell me who the leader of their world was at that moment and you, you'd start to tell me about what they were thinking. Take, well, take me through that some of that evolution, right? That, that, the what they were, really the what they were thinking is the what they were thinking would be speculation. <laughs> but when you look at the um, the history of empire, um, the boom bust cycles, which um, afflict all um, economies uh, and economic models, you know, at the core, um, it's that that credit cycle, and and credit, of course, is based on the Latin. To believe credit is so money is money credit is the promise to pay money in extremes um, we start to trade credit instruments as if they were money we're really at an extreme now with this um, which is very confounding for me so um, but going back in history Neil looking at how markets developed like, um, you know, the first futures market was really uh, created in Japan by the samurai were paid in rice. Um, and, you know, how much rice can a man eat? Or <laughs> even if he's a very <laughs> stout samurai. So to, to, to monetize that, um, the, the futures markets were created. And the first derivatives um, were the were created by the Sumerians, um, which were um, you know derivatives on the prices of wheat, um, contracts that guaranteed a specific price, um, kind of like futures, but not as uh, not as um, close to today's futures markets as the Japanese had developed. So all of these things. Uh, kind of fed my understanding of credit generally, um, counterparty risk, 
um, and how how modern markets developed and how the roots of modern markets um, go way back in time and um, what it says about our humanity. I mean, how much things have changed on the surface, but how little has changed with our um, human motivations, emotions, <laughs> the pull of fear and greed, um, and of course, the structures we create um, and the forms of money that we create. So um, anyway, so I'm looking at all of that, it, it really helped me to get a better grasp of um, the larger cycles that affect us all. Now, of course, I encountered a lot of um, people I don't understand. I don't want to say they're quacks, but um, like uh, Nikolai Kondratiev is a great mathematician of Russian provenance, um, and he postulated, or really just observed, that there were these long cycles that last 60 to 80 years, where credit expands, and then for 15 years or so it contracts. Um, sometimes as long as 30 years in the contraction phase. So the expansion of credit in these long cycles um, lasts about twice as long as the contraction. Um, sometimes four times as long. Um, well, that's good. That means economies generally grow and expand, at least the opportunities do, over time. So um, probably 70, 30, or 60, 40, you've got growth <laughs> somewhere in that space. And that's reflected in a lot of things, even in the Bible, in the book of Leviticus, um, where the debt jubilee was first postulated um, or proposed that uh, on the seventh year, the seventh year, the religious authorities, the Pharisees would forgive all debts. Bad time to be a banker. Good time to be a, a borrower. <laughs> but um, the um, credit expands to a degree where um, it can no longer be supported by economic activity. In other words, the belief starts to shrink. Um, and we're certainly seeing some of that in different markets now, like uh, in tight oil and shale drilling, you know, those um, very what we call now risky credits. But the banks were lending very, very freely and open handedly um, just two years ago in that space. Um, so anyway, the the ebbs and flows of credit really um, help to inform my investment decisions. Two phases the way I see it, right? So, so far, um, experiences in your highs and your lows and your tradings of the Wing Computing Company or Wing Labs, I guess, out of Boston there. Um, mm -hmm. Meeting the, the brokers who had pretty uh, swanky pads. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the study, uh, you know, losing uh, all of your investment, going the entire cycle, then understanding the credit cycles. What's next? What's the next phase of you uh, of your understanding to bring you to where you are today? Wow, it's a great question. This I mean, is a is this the time you started to study valuation? You did that before. I, I, I'm trying to literally construct a timeline on my sheet of paper oh, in front I of me. Yeah. I'm trying yeah, to I, say Chris invests for the first time in 1983 or 1984. Uh, here's how Chris killed it in the market for a few of his clients who would listen you know, in 2009, here's where we are today. And here's how he did pretty well in January. 
mm-hmm. um, t- 2015, 2016. Yeah. Um, help me understand that timeline a little better. So, yeah, the um, initial, the early phase was very, uh, I was a novice. I just got lucky with Wang Labs and a few others. It was the right time. Um, It was the monkey throwing darts. I was the monkey. And I had pretty good aim, I guess. (laughs) But eventually, a lot of those businesses came full cycle. And I realized that um, I needed to understand valuation better. And that's where Ben Graham um, and, of course, Buffett and Irving Kahn and uh, Walter Schloss and the whole Graham and Dodd crew came into my world. And thank God for them, because it really grounded me in in uh, valuing, uh, getting a handle on appraising the intrinsic value of, a, of an ongoing enterprise of a company. Um, but then, you know, with looking at 1987, and then the deep recession of ninety nine uh, of eighty nine to ninety one, roughly, um, and it was especially compounded here in California by the real estate recession and the savings and loan crisis. So credit was contracting in certain areas, especially real estate finance, um, and you could really see the impact. Um, that really had me to uh, force me, along with the the recollection of nineteen eighty seven, to look deeply at understanding economic history and the credit cycle. So, so some of it was just losing your own money through living through cycles. Yes. While yeah. the study of history, while the study, uh, understanding of how to analyze and value an asset. Um, when did you finally uh, get better at synthesizing all of that? I mean, today you're able to synthesize a fair amount of, you know, I got to listen to a few of your conversations on Friday. Um, yeah, you were just talking to a client for five minutes only about how you were going to, uh, trade depending or your strategy for that client was dependent on how, how much liquidity and time you needed. And you went to a fair amount of depth. And I was imagining right then that there is no chance that you could have understood, uh, how to synthesize all of that information, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago in a way that was going to work for the client the way it did today. Talk to me about how all of those pieces start to get pulled together a little bit. Yeah, yeah, wow. Um, well, uh, again, the there are um, there are a couple ways to think about it. Um, I remember attending a Berkshire Hathaway meeting um, back in the late '90s, and. Buffett and and Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett and his um, vice chairman and partner, Charlie Munger, were being chided by the by some investors in the crowd who were saying, look, we've invested in these tech names. And, you know, most of them aren't here anymore. Exodus Communications and (laughs) Pets.com. And we're making a killing. Why won't you venture out of your circle of your comfort zone? is the way they phrased it and um, invest in these. And, and, you know, Warren Buffett's um, comment, which still applies today, really resonated with me. He said there, um, he said there, there may be a lot of money to be made. And certainly we've missed things like in pharmaceuticals, we missed it, but I didn't understand the technology. And, you know, I prefer things like C's candy. We've made about 1.6 billion in free cash flow from C's candies. Over the 20 plus years we've owned them, that's great. 
And then Charlie Munger chided, there's not much technological change in candy. Peanut brittle stays the same. <laughs> Every year. <right>? Every year. <laughs> and everybody cracked up, but it really uh, struck me. So there are obviously those kinds of investments, you know, a Procter & Gamble or if you can get it at the at a good price, then you need worry less about um, people are always going to need diapers and uh, they're going to need to shave. Um, so a lot of that uh, will take care of itself. But I also have to say that I've made my mistakes, Neil, and we shared a little bit about it. But I recently invested in a company um, that looked almost um, it re- really looked like a very secure businessman's risk and it quickly devolved into a liquidity crunch and a crisis and a company that's going through bankruptcy now it is a zinc producer called horsehead holdings um, and they really had a unique business model um, they recycled um, toxic dust from many steel mills and converted it back into um, zinc and zinc oxide, which is used in rash creams and sunblock. And um, and there's a half a pound of zinc in every car tire. And we import um, 60 to 80 percent of the zinc we use in this country every year. I mean, it's even in vitamins, of course. Anyway, I um, the fact that they were getting paid for the raw material, not having to mine it, not having to expend dollars to do it. Uh, they're paid to take away this raw material. Um, this toxic dust from the mini steel mills, they had um, 85% of that market locked up. So there's no competitor. They signed agreements with all the mills. Um, It just seemed like this is a really great moat uh, around the business. Um, And um, the business model looked sound. They opened a new business. They opened a new processing plant. Um, and they had operational difficulties with the processing plant. They couldn't get it fully operational. It was running at about 40% of capacity. And for it to cash flow the way I had modeled it, it needed to get up to 65 or 70% of capacity. And they couldn't get there. They had these operational problems. So while the company was operationally excellent in their vision, securing deals with the steel mills, locking up the supply chain for their raw material and getting paid for it um, and taking those cost advantages. They overspent on the facility. They couldn't get it operationally up to um, the capacity needed to generate the cost savings versus the old smelter system they had. Um, And they lost the confidence of their banks, which started to pull credit lines. And finally, almost not to say it's a perfect storm, because I think that analogy is used too much and it's an excuse for intellectual laziness, but the China collapse pushed the zinc price down to 65 cents a pound or something, which made it really look um, um, remote that this thing would become profitable. And then, you know, when Macquarie Bank, one of their last bankers, pulled the credit line, the company was forced um, into a liquidity crisis um, and even suspended operations at their brand new plant. So that uh, whole thing made me think again about what do I know <laughs> and where did I make these mistakes? And I think one of them was 
looking not just at the credit cycle, but of course the credit cycle and how it it um, how it um, affects or its interplay with the commodity cycle, right? So um, even though I felt there was a moat and a nice buffer, um, I didn't expect that it would take two years for this plant to become operational. And I really fully expected that they would uh, get that thing up to 90% capacity within two years. But no, it floundered. And so anyway, um, that's a recent learning. And I'm, I'm still digesting that, Neil, to figure out where I go from here in terms of what are the lessons I can take. Um, and that, that investment still might, it's very remote, but there's still a possibility because the the bankruptcy procedures uh, were voluntary. There's a whole other line of thinking we can take, but for now, this is what I'm digesting and, and contemplating. So, so building on that, obviously, you started to understand the commodity versus credit cycle. So mm -hmm. you understood better where to invest and why you might put uh, people in gold who weren't Indian clients. It's because they own <laughs> right. lots of gold. Right, um, right. There are a few still, a few more things, uh, you know, just trying to to layer on top of this timeline. Mm -hmm. um, I remember you telling me you took vacation once, really. Uh, I think it was to Argentina when uh, the currency had really devalued. Um, you had some great name for uh, cheap currency tourism. I don't remember what it was. Oh yeah, yeah. Cri well, I call it uh, crisis travel. But crisis I travel. Well, yeah. So Oh, hold so on. The... No, hold on, hold on, hold on. So uh, help tie, tie some of these things together to me because they seem to me to make you a little bit better of an investor. Uh, crisis tourism, uh, yeah. your, your time in China, um, your time in New Orleans. Uh, I still say that wrong. New Orleans. There you uh, go. <laughs> um and how these different travel experiences have changed a little bit of how you're looking at companies and at, at investment. Well, I think one of the things I, um, I always try to think about, and you do this, Neil, I think, um, is I try to think in terms of probabilities, right? And, um, well, I do. I, may, I force myself to. And that's not a natural thing for most people. I think for anyone, actually, we... Um, we don't generally think that way. And I, and, and my study of the economic cycle, um, has helped me in that sense. So when I, when I used to do crisis travel, you know, my wife's not a big fan, so we don't really, I haven't <laughs> engaged in it so much because I'd be in Russia today, probably enjoying the fruits of the low ruble. <laughs> well, it's something about how they didn't pick up trash and it smelled really uh, poorly outside the Four Seasons or something like that. Shoot. So yeah, Ritz Carlton. So you know, when I saw that the the um, Argentine peso crashed in two thousand two thousand one, I looked at it and I said, okay. Um, and Argentina is a unique case because they pretty much destroyed their currency. They, they do it episodically about every seven to ten years. There's a new currency crisis, but right fresh off the lows. Um, and the bottoming of the currency, uh, I looked at it and said, here, now is the time to go. You know, I, I got a downtown, a room at the downtown Buenos Aires Ritz Carlton for 60 bucks a night. It was great. Very cheap. No tourists, really no crowds. So I had a taxi that I could, uh, 
rent for myself the whole day. I had a driver. Um, but the downside of that was there were people going through the rubbish bins at the Ritz-Carlton looking for food, and these were people who clearly were not um, homeless. They were men in business suits who had uh, suffered. So some of it was a little untoward. Uh, Bali, too, when Bali was bombed, um, I went to Bali because really the Muslim population there is non-existent virtually. I mean, it's like less than 2%. Um, and I thought that that, that bombing was going to be an isolated event. And sure enough, um, you know, from a probability standpoint, there wasn't and still hasn't been um, another attack of any significance there by any Islamic um, extremists. So going to Bali was great. That, and that one didn't in, involve um, economic hardship, but there was just, there were deals everywhere because the tourists were frightened, um, as the terrorists had intended, you know, to strike at the heart of the, of the tourist trade. But Bali's wonderful, peaceful, beautiful. It was great. So th again, thinking just probabilistically about it, um, the crisis travel, and because I'm naturally kind of cheap. <laughs> plenty, plenty. The, the, right, right. I, uh, I, I like that. Uh, it was a great strategy. But, but yeah, what, what did that teach you about being a better investor? I mean, it seems to me all these travels have, have taught you a lot, and I'm sure going into China is going to share a little bit more. Well, I think some in some way they're they're married. You know, my my investment um, understanding made me a better traveler. Um, opened me up to different cultures, like we talked about. You know, my understanding of the futures market in Japan and um, and the the old um, wheat markets in the Tigris Euphrates Valley, the the cradle of civilization. So anyway, I look at this all in. Um, and I also really, the, the investing really helped me to understand these larger cycles um, that we're, we're subject to. And also an understanding of how ridiculous central banking is. <laughs> so I don't want to go down too deep a rabbit hole, but, you know, for um, to have uh, economies which are really generally built on price discovery uh, and free markets, um, to have a price administered that is probably the most important price, the cost of money, interest rates, administered by a group, I don't care how smart they are, how many letters they have behind their, their names and how many titles, is really quite foolish, you know. I mean, so, but it exists. It's what we have to deal with. And what I realize is that the central banks, far from ameliorating or reducing the crisis, crises, these cycles actually exacerbate them and make them more extreme. So we get more extremes to the upside when the markets naturally overshoot. They now overshoot more um, and they'll naturally undershoot more, which is, of course, great for investors who are thinking about probabilities and opportunity. So okay, hold so your hand. <laughs> well, so let's leave the, the last few questions or phases, I, I, I don't know, layers of how you look at investment, your, your time in China and how that changed how you look at the world, New Orleans, jazz, and, and some of your daily habits and how they help 
keep the the world more quiet for you not to be suspect to the noise of uh, most investments. Mm-hmm. Um, the the last thing I'd like to do every time on you know this is our second podcast, but the last thing I'd like to do every time is just talk about the market where it's going now. Uh, last time we talked a little bit about the elections and it was interesting just to, to talk to uh, my wife and a friend about who they thought would be better for the economy, uh, you know, depending on who was elected. Um, this time I, I think it might be good for us to cover another current event uh, that's happening now. Um, it, there must be a question that, you know, a lot of your clients are calling with right now, or there's a little bit of a sentiment. Ian, is there any specific question that's going on currently? Well, I'd be interested to hear Chris's comment on the um, the, the high yield market as we were kind of touching upon the credit cycle and, and how those two are connected and sort of the, the movements in the yield market as of uh, that, that have recently been occurring. Yeah. Well, the, Ian, that's a great one because it, uh, I mean, clearly there's a, a lot of stress um, in the um, energy space, um, but that that stress has generally uh, been magnified because that's where the banks were lending most open-handedly. Probably about 17% of the high-yield market, which is a fairly large number, is um, directly related to exploration and production. Um, drilling companies and oil field services. So there's a um, tremendous amount of stress there. But I'm also thinking, and I don't really have my arms around it yet, what are the second and third order effects of this, right? So if the E&P companies and these uh, oil field services companies start to, you know, they're falling away, um, what are the repercussions of that? I mean, what are the other industries that would be dragged down? How does it affect the overall economy? So I'm I'm kind of still working through it. I I do see, you know, clearly spreads are widening. Um, so moving um, toward credits is it from an investment standpoint um, that are more secure. Even as Neil heard me talking about the other day straight to U.S. Treasuries, probably um, among the most secure, even if um, politically (laughs) influenced credits that are available. So I, you know, um, that the spreads are blowing open. Um, This reminds me a lot of what we saw early in 2008. And the, the more disturbing fact is that the financial sector stocks are rolling over. So, um, you know, I, I read all these commentaries from Wall Street and mostly they're promotional, like, don't worry, stay invested. This looks good. This looks good. This looks good. Let's keep it simple. Um, if everything is so great, why are the stocks rolling over? Right. Why is, you know, Wells Fargo one of the best run of the large banks? Why is their stock down, you know, 20 percent from its high? Um, and that's one of the best ones. Why is, um, you know, J.P. Morgan crashing and Deutsche Bank? What's going on with DB, which has the largest derivatives book in the business? I can't say that I know, but um, just keeping it simple and looking at the behavior of the equities. um, And clearly there are people who know more than I in that space who are sellers. There are um, 
if everything was fine, the insiders would be buying. We don't see that. We see insider selling. So that just raises the question. There's more that than which than that which meets the eye there. And as long as these financial stocks, uh, the financial, the equity in these financial corporations continues to roll over, I would expect uh, the corollary to be that uh, the high yield spreads continue to widen. So, um, but that still is open-ended and it might not be a satisfying answer, Ian. <laughs> I'm not satisfied yet either, but I'm looking. Chris, I have uh, a couple more questions and um, we may not get to both of them today. So you might weave them in, in just to our conversations over the next little bit anyway. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious about how the self-driving car is really going to change the economy. And that's secondary. I mean, I have some great guesses and I've been looking at uh, where I think Uber's going to go and um, mm -hmm. how, how it's slowly squeezing uh, people down uh, because people are making less and less as more and more people drive. Right, but right. One of the things that I hear every day is how uh, China is the first domino in, in really hurting everybody in terms of their economy. Mm -hmm. um, partly because they own so many of the things here. You know, they own so much of our credit. They sell us so many things. We're a partner to China. It, to, to me, part of me always wonders, well, why can't we help China in some way if we're the world's superpower? What's going on there? And, you know, how's that really going to affect, you know, uh, how, how's that going to affect my wife working at Microsoft? Um, so take, take me a little bit through the Chinese conversation uh, of how they're really going to... Um, affect the United States, and we can end that as our last question today. Ooh, that's a big one. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to leave you with an easy one. Well, when I lived in China, the first thing I learned was how little you could know about what's really going on in China. But there are some things that you can really see. I mean, clearly, the economy is contracting. I mean, they became brilliantly the assembly line for the world. Um, and as the world has, again, it's not just China, but um, the whole trading world in concert, probably with um, leaving aside some parts of uh, Asia, Southeast Asia and Africa, have been joining hands in expanding credit. But China takes the trophy. I mean, they've grown their, their total social financing, they call it, which is bank credit. <laughs> I like that socialist leaning that communist name total social financing but anyway it's grown from around five trillion at we um at the time of the lehman crisis to over 35 trillion today so they've been expanding credit rapidly and we can see the evidence of what they've been building with that borrowed money um and it's not good it's not generating a return i mean ghost cities empty amusement parks malls um but really it's uh an old uh cultural fix that China's trying to get around. You know, the, the ruling party, all the way from the time of the emperors, um, was believed to rule from the mandate of heaven, that um, when fortune smiles on the ruler, then the country enjoys peace and prosperity. And once there is disorder, or luan, as the Chinese call it, then it's a sign that the emperor, or now the communist party leaders, have lost the mandate of heaven. Um, and it sets in train 
a process whereby everyone starts to support some regime change. And of course, that's not, uh, not, not very good for the ruling party. So in order to prevent that disorder, social unrest, protests, etc., as the factories um, started to close and unemployment grew, they switched to construction jobs. Um, building things that no one wanted, bridges to nowhere, and the ghost cities we've talked about. But at least for the time being, it was a stopgap measure and kept people, uh, unemployed people from protesting, kept them off the streets, kept them fed. But it was all with borrowed money. Now, um, that can't continue either. I mean, there, there's a lot of desperation um, on the part of the Chinese officials. And I'll say this, just in the last month and a half, um, the last numbers I have are to February 15th, the Chinese total social financing grew by $1 trillion in just a month and a half. A trillion U.S. dollars, not renminbi. So, um, you know, like um, a stock that rises meteorically, the crash is usually a parallel to that dramatic rise. When you see the blow-off top in credit creation, it's usually meant by met on the other side by a deep credit contraction. So this kind of desperation, throwing more and more credit onto the fire, fanning those flames, um, is a very worrisome sign. Um, I don't know, uh, but, you know, China, of course, is uh, like Greece we talked about before, Neil. They've been bankrupt five times since their um, inception as an independent country out of the Ottoman Empire. The Chinese um, have had their own uh, dalliances with bankruptcy. Um, and it's also a feature of, the, of Chinese culture where these very large-scale projects um, capture the imagination. So the building of these large cities is a lot like what we saw with the Three Gorges Dam or building of the Great Wall or the Grand Canal, these giant engineering projects which China shows they can accomplish, but which generally have and historically have bankrupted the country. Um, this will be no different. You know, um, I don't know what the number is today, but back in 2013, I realized that in just the past two years from 2011 to 2013, in square footage, they had added 50 Manhattans um, to the office. Right, I had read that stat, right. 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 And they poured more concrete. They consumed more concrete um, from 2012 to 2014, roughly overlapping that period I just mentioned, than the U.S. did in the whole of the 20th century. Where was your uncle then, Neil? <laughs> I was actually just thinking about how he told me he, he lost on a, uh, I think he said he, he was bidding on some clinker deposits. An uncle of mine uh, runs a big cement company in Kenya. And uh, he, he, he was he was bidding against some Chinese bidders. Uh, clinker is one of the in key ingredients in concrete. Um, yeah. To some Chinese yeah. firms, and they're expanding rapidly in in Kenya as well. Chris, I think that's the end of our podcast again. Until uh, till this next week. Yeah. Well, it was great talking to both of you guys. Thank you. And the audience. <laughs>